0: Most people told me to take the opening out of the film. If I take it out, there was not a point in making the movie.
1: I'm Dawn Borchardt, and you're listening to For Real, a podcast where I interview filmmakers. I'm actually just catching up right now, so this episode was recorded back in spring, but I'm super excited to be putting it out now.
0: Hello, I'm Robert Machoyan, the writer-director of The Killing of Two Lovers. Killing of Two Lovers is a film about a couple in this period of drift, where they've chosen to separate Nikki's kind of growing as an individual and David's trying to give her that space. I was interested in the challenge of allowing your partner to grow as well as not losing them.
1: I went to UW Milwaukee for film school, which is an experimental film school that focuses a lot more on like artistic vision and abstract storytelling and like tactile, um, like 16 millimeter films. Um, versus like big traditional film production
0: you know I went out there to to look at the program oh because of American movie I mean Chris Smith had gone there yeah so then I had seen the movie and I was was looking at, at undergraduate schools and I flew out there took a tour I was actually really excited by that but I had done junior college and the fact that I had already done two years of school the professor i met with, she was like it's a program that you have to start as a freshman so she was like you'll you would end up having to double major because you won't have enough courses oh. so then it would it would, it would have added another four years so i ended up not going but the the department was pretty amazing
1: oh, and I I, great. I
0: I kind of agree with them it's funny that i teach photography because i got my interviews at film schools never went well as a professor. <laughs> Because I would say this medium is like 100 years old. Like to try and establish structures is is wild, right? It's like painting has thousands of years. So when you talk about the color red, there's like 1,000 years of like how that red has been used to to say something. Where film, I'm like, we still don't know. We've like established these medium close-up wides. But we, you know, in these these uh, structures. But even James Benning he talks about how sound came too early to cinema, and we oh. we didn't
1: have time in in
0: the visual language of just watching imagery. And I agree. And yeah, it never Interesting went
1: away. Perspective. I like yeah. it.
0: So I liked, it, as far as Milwaukee, I liked that because I felt like they were still acknowledging the unknown of the medium. mm Hmm. Oh,
1: it was a great school. I absolutely loved going there. And I have I mean, I'm so happy that I did. And I'm from Milwaukee, you know, so I'm lucky that it was just like happened to be the school there. Um, I probably would have went there anyway. Yeah, it was an amazing school. I'm still in pretty close contact with a lot of like the faculty and students and stuff there. I just have such a great program. And then I used to work at the UWM Union Theater. We showed such good films and had so many great artists come through and, like, show their work and, like, do, like, 16-millimeter shows. And we had a Experimental Tuesdays program that quite often had the filmmaker there, which was amazing.
0: That is but... so cool.
1: Yeah, I was really lucky. It was a really weird thing to get to utah and like i guess i had kind of taken it for granted because i grew up in milwaukee and was always around that staff and just assumed like i was all over the place
0: yeah that's how i felt i was living in davis from san francisco kind of just took it for granted the experience of most like i feel like a snob sometimes because i'll be talking about specific artists and people are like what <laughs> out of, like, I'm not talking about the guy that like lives in uh, you know a remote town in Iowa and makes these little video you know I'm like I thought I was th- I'm talking about standard people and they're like mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> getting it. I've been here for five years which seems like a long time but doesn't feel like it in in trying to understand and get into the I'm, I'm starting this year to meet artists and like makers in the area. Which is really exciting because they're they're really talented individuals. But it's like, it's not inherent. You have to kind of dig around. Or what I'm learning is I'm getting to know people really well that that have lived here for like 25 years. And then they go like, oh, you know, so-and-so and so-and-so. And And then I'm like, oh, okay. I'm
1: also just starting to get into that too. So I just did a gallery show with the Salt Lake City Arts Council. And they just started... A program called Flash Projects. And so I was the first Flash project, and they have a gallery space in Salt Lake City where they're trying to do more like performance based and experimental work which is super cool. So I showed a film I made on a loop in the space and then I had shot it with performance group and they performed live for our opening and made sculptural components based on their performances and the film and like put them throughout the gallery so that was super cool.
0: I know there's a thriving film community and I'm just starting to get to know that because I have Scott Christofferson who did the documentary Peace Officer he teaches here at BYU as well. Oh. And he's really actually well-connected. And so he produced The Killing of Two Lovers, and so we've gotten to know each other more. And he knows just, he knows everybody. And so then I'm, I'm starting to learn about all these really great filmmakers. Like I didn't know the filmmaker that did the doc on Jawbreaker, like, lives here. I think it's an exciting time for Utah, and maybe I'm being arrogant in the in the context of moving, but I have felt as I've been meeting filmmakers, it feels like there's something happening. But there are other filmmakers that are making great work, and what, the other thing that I think is really interesting right now in Utah is that all the filmmakers that are starting to make work here. At Sundance, I was talking to, you know, they're like, oh, so many films are shot in Utah. And I was like, films are shot in Utah, but they're not about Utah. They're mm-hmm. about, you know, like nine days. They're, they're about heaven, you know, or they're about, you know, the West, But I'm like, but it's very rare to find a film made about Utah, about Utah culture. And I'm like, that's what's starting to happen with filmmakers living here is that they're able to like explore what's happening amongst the culture. And that's really exciting for me because Moab and that whole area is really beautiful, but nobody uses it for Utah. They use it for,
1: you know, some other idea. This is also a good conversation because I just got hired as a Utah film ambassador it's like mm-hmm. a mostly like a social media thing essentially. Like shooting like behind the scenes stuff on sets and things and like oh. talking about where different films have been shot in Utah. But I'm glad to hear that perspective of it. Like I knew that, but I guess I hadn't thought that through so much that people are making films in Utah but not really about Utah.
0: It is really cool that, that you know, it's cool that that's happening. But one of the things when I talked to Virginia Pierce, I was talking about how I like to make work based off of like where I live. That has a big influence on what I write about and what I'm thinking about. And she was talking to me, she's like, well, what do you think about Utah having living here, lived here now? And I said, well, what's interesting about living in Utah that I think is very unique personally. And I've lived in California, I lived in Nebraska, and I've lived in Utah. Those have been the main places that I've like lived for a long time. But Utah, I feel like anyways, is constantly wrestling on some moral level with like how they feel about things.
1: To link it to your film, even in the first couple of minutes, like instantly felt an understanding of where you were coming from, with just seeing handmade quilts in two of the scenes, were those like intentional or is that just like because it's such a thing here that they just wound up there?
0: Yeah, it's kind of mixed. We said dress less in the... Because we didn't have the budget to obviously bring a lot of things in. So it was more a matter of like the location scouting and then properly location scouting. So then the result of that was obviously since we shot Kanosh, the result of it was a lot of people having the cultural things that were prevalent, that are prevalent in the community. You know, it's like, I didn't place things specific, but I knew by using these areas, then it would be a representation of that, that we were in authentic environment. And that we were like, what we were seeing from a viewer standpoint was the culture of the town.
1: Like the first shot we see is like the wife (laughs) sleeping with presumably another man in bed with this quilt and the quilt just i'm assuming would represent her marriage <laughs> yeah. and she's sleeping with another man under it so that was really powerful you had talked earlier about your sense of place being important to you and other films you've made as well can you talk more about that
0: i'd been down in kanash to writing another project and Clayne and i have been trying to work together for a lot of years And the project I was rewriting was for him and I to work on together. And I would walk around just to kind of breathe. And I walked by the Red Brick House. And seeing that house, I was like, and and in relationship to location, I was like, we're definitely going to shoot right here. I was like, here's the house. I'm going to write a script. This is where it's going to take place. On the onset, our understanding of marriage is presented to us as a very beautiful thing. The ideology of it is very beautiful, it's like two people coming together and how amazing this is and how happy it is, and I really thought the mountains were a strong metaphor for our understanding of marriage and the distance of them being so far away because, again, from an outsider looking in at marriage, that's kind of how we're we're raised to believe it to be, and the reality of marriage is very gritty. It's very makeshift at, at the time of writing Killing to lovers I felt the town really represented more of the rawness of a marriage and the struggle to try and continue to to keep a marriage going
1: what kind of personal emotions and experiences went into that and like what does your wife think of the film
0: (laughs) yeah i mean i think the film was challenging because i was doing a lot of research at the time to really understand the different aspects of marriage i mean i'm married we've been married for 20 years so i could draw from my own experience but one of the things that really motivated it was there's this period which we're in called the drift which is when the couple start talking more about their kids than they talk about each other and their relationships because the kids are demanding so much from them. And a lot of the research I was doing is divorce, highest in the first two years of marriage and the first two years when the kids leave the home. Mm. So those are the areas. And they said the reason why is because this drift happens, the kids move out of the house and then you realize you don't really know each other anymore. And your, like, life goals are, like, completely different. The thing about in the writing process, I was becoming very paranoid. You know, I was like, we need to be proactive. We're not going to be together, you know, when all is said and done. And she's like, no, we're fine. Don't worry about it. And I'm like, what are you talking about? But this, like, there's nothing to worry about. And this hyper paranoia coming from my end and just how we ended up kind of having some pretty serious arguments about it. And that really influenced me in the writing process because really David and and Nikki are in these different periods you know it's like they're coming at two different things trying to have a conversation about their relationship which isn't really gelling because they're both thinking about different things.
1: Going back to your work with like photography and visuals, I was wondering if you could just talk about the visual tone of the film.
0: What I always think about in the context of making independent, I feel like there's two approaches to independent cinema. And one is you really just want to make bigger films, but you can't get anyone to give you $20 million yet. So you make a small film, so that you eventually can make a Marvel movie. And then there's independent cinema where filmmakers are trying to figure out, you know, how to push the medium or explore the medium or to tell a story from a unique perspective. And since we didn't have a lot of money with this film, and since I do have a photographic background, I started to think a lot about could we frame the compositions in a way that were photographically beautiful and then allow the subjects to move within those frames. Mm and that we always consider it a photograph first, and then we block from there.
1: Well, that makes so, sense, considering how it looks. That's
0: cool. Yeah, so I, I looked at a lot of Robert Frank, who I really like, obviously. And then the film Wanda by Barbara Loden was a big influence on me. That film is is photographed really well. We were able to, to go down to Kanash for a week prior, and then we were able to really like sit around and look at where these things should take place and where the event should take place and and really kind of lock it down that was really critical for me and then also for oscar
1: i was looking at your imdb and it looked like you had a pretty good mix of documentary and narrative work so what is your approach to documentary work then like as a cinematographer who really appreciates uh beautiful imagery
0: So, Rodrigo Hedebeck, who I've collaborated with most of my career up until the last couple years, him and I did a series called American Nobodies, and we started it when we were in undergrad, and it was really actually just a way to try and give ourselves a place to improve. We knew, obviously, we didn't know a lot about what we were doing. So, the kind of idea of the project was, it was also in response to these celebrities like the Kardashians that were becoming famous for nothing, and I just couldn't wrap my head around that either. So... (laughs) So so we would pitch this idea. Do you know anybody that you think's amazing and would let us do a documentary on them? And then people would think about the people they knew and be like, oh, yeah, like my dad, for example, he's like, well, you know that the Wellburn's all unicycle, right? <laughs> and i am just like, What? He's like, Yeah. The dad learned how to unicycle and then he taught all his kids how to unicycle. And then I'd be like, You think you'd let us do a doc on that? And he'd be like, Probably. I'd be like, We'll call him and, and let him know that my dad would call and be like, Hey, would you? And they'd be like, Yeah. And so we started with the people we knew and then we grew out. And we did fifty in total.
1: Oh my gosh. And
0: what what was interesting to learn from that is people weren't really comfortable doing the audio and the video at the same time. They'd freeze up. So we started doing the audio separate. And then what that started to require me from a cinematography standpoint is like, what's going to be happening within the image since the audio will be different. At the time I shot, all of it shot handheld. I was too young enough to really understand my style, but I was thinking about that. Like how the camera's going to be moving because the characters are moving, but how can I rest on good compositions and learn to improve my compositions? Killing up Two Lovers though is the first time it's never handheld. I was like, we're not going to go handheld at all. Everything's going to be these composed shots. So that was very kind of new for me.
1: Were there any like stories that you have from the shoot that, you know, didn't make it on screen because it's a narrative that are worth sharing or any like crazy shooting mishaps or anything?
0: The biggest one was we were scheduled the rocket scene in the film. We were scheduled to shoot in the morning and we got ready to shoot it and it just started snowing. Oh, geez. Like a heavy snow. And within two minutes, the whole field we were shooting in was, like, just covered. So we're like, we can't. I was like, well, there goes the day. And the producer's like, no, we have 12 days to shoot. We can't <laughs> cancel a day. Uh-huh. Shooting. I don't know what we're going to do. So then, luckily, my dad had been there, who plays the father in the movie. Oh. There was supposed to be another actor who came to play the dad, and he got... Offered a, a job that paid a lot more money, so he didn't come. So I kind of asked my dad last minute. He has he's been in my films before. I was like, hey, do you think you could play the dad role? He was like, yeah, sure. He was supposed to shoot three days, like from that day. So it snows. Producers like we're shooting something. What can we shoot? And I'm like, oh, well, my dad's here. And he's like, we're shooting the your stuff with your dad. So I have to go tell him, and he's freaking out because he just started memorizing his lines.
1: Aww.
0: Um and so we put him in the whole opening scene where you see David and, mm-hmm. and dad. And so we shoot that for, I think, about two, three hours. And during that period of time, the sun melted all, came out, melts all the snow. And so then we're like, okay, but we still need to try and shoot that. So mm-hmm. then we came back to the park. Luckily, everything's relatively close, but we came back to the park But by now, because this is, you know, it's the winter, so the sun goes down around 4.30 here. So we start shooting that thing at, I think it was like 3.30. So we only got two takes as a result, and then the sun was gone. And it was, like, so stressful. And the take in the film is the first take.
1: Oh, wow. Well, it's a great scene. It's very emotionally charged, so (laughs) I guess you got lucky then.
0: Yeah, and I, I was just really lucky that Avery, who plays the older older sister, she had done theater, so she knew we were going to go long and she had lived in that world. And my kids play the, the the boys in the movie. Oh, they do? Yeah. Oh, my
1: gosh.
0: So Those are my I boys. That. And that we've done multiple films together now and they knew we were going to go long and we had discussed what, what, they, what their characters were doing, the response of their characters. They know they have a little bit of freedom within obviously the improv to, to respond to how things are happening for weren't the individuals if it wasn't clane and avery and the boys i don't think we would have pulled it off at all
1: i love that it was your sons they're so great <laughs> i didn't realize yeah. that that's cool that you had so much family involved in the process What was your experience like premiering the film at Sundance and what has been just putting out in the world?
0: Every single screening of the film has been really amazing for me. What I was surprised was how interactive it was, like how engaged the audience was in their responses and verbal responses. I mean, when the Derek character kind of in, in part of the climax of the film comes into play and there's a line where he says, I think it's important. I need to be a part of this. I mean, people people would be like, "No, <laughs> no," you know. Uh-huh.
1: And
0: as a filmmaker, to watch an audience actually be verbally—oh
1: my gosh—is really.
0: That unbelievable all the screenings at Sundance were really like that it was like a very engaged audience oh
1: my gosh I love that so much
0: (laughs) yeah so I was excited to get to try I mean hopefully we'll the film will continue on the festival circuit after everybody's safe and healthy because the interaction with seeing an audience kind of experience that and then also just talking to people after and hearing individuals that were either Nikki or were either David in their own marriages and like how some of them worked worked through it and how some of them did not work through it and how some of it really touched at things that they had. Like somebody said to me, like, I actually said that to my wife. He's like, I can't, can't believe that was in your movie because it, it like uh-huh. came out of my mouth,
1: uh-huh. <laughs> you know? Uh-huh.
0: To have these individuals be like, we were in, these are private moments But then have dialogue that was very true to what they kind of talked about. I thought for me was a huge success.
1: I love getting to talk to filmmakers and hearing their stories about that because it's always like a nice surprise for filmmakers, it seems, that people can relate so much. But I mean, that's also why you all tell these stories. So
0: (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) yeah, it's a scary, you know, I make shorts also and i always say in short q a's if people don't like your movie they just ask they don't ask any questions i ask the person whose movie they did like but with a feature film they're all they can do is ask you questions or no questions at all (laughs) like you're Uh gonna stay up there for at least 15 minutes one way or another (laughs) Uh, so so, so it is very intimidating and for some reason yeah i mean we try and share universal ideas as filmmakers so that we can grow as people, but you're always scared, you just miss it. You mm-hmm. know. I know Killing of Two Lovers, I was pushing some ideas that might upset some people. You know, they may for me it was a question of like can you have empathy for somebody who does something in early on in the film that you are not in agreement with at all. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times I feel like with our frustrations about specific people or specific ideas. It's really not understanding it enough, or understanding what's motivating people, you know. But I knew the risk. I mean, when I was in the rough cut stages, most people told me to take the opening out of the film. They're really? like, take that. take it out. You can't. Like, no one's going to program this at all if you do that. And I was like, it's the whole question for the film.
1: Uh-huh.
0: I was like, if I if I take it out, there was no point in making the in no for me anyway. It's not a point in making the movie.
1: Uh huh. Yeah, I would definitely not say take that out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Robert, for joining me on this episode of Faux Reel. A little update on The Killing of Two Lovers. It was recently bought by the distributor Neon, and it will be coming out the day after my birthday in 2021, February 23rd. Thank you for listening to this episode of Faux Reel. The music is Lost and Bound by Tommy Kali, and special thanks to Jen Wilson. I have some exciting new episodes coming out soon, so to help me reach some more people, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, please, please, please leave me a review. That'd be awesome, and subscribe wherever you listen, and special bonus points if you tell another film lover in your life to check out the podcast. Thank you guys so much for your support.